I, I have a friend who's from Canada and if he's, if he's listening to this, he'll know who he is. But, um, he has a, the way that a lot of Americans have a really weird orientalist fetish of like China and Japan. That's how he is with the U S um, as a Canadian. And so one time he came here and he insisted we had to go to Applebee's. I'm like, bro, like, come on. I don't want to go to Applebee's. And <laughs> but we Nick, went to it's fucking the neighborhood <laughs> grill. It's the neighborhood bar and grill. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, I was so, I was so mad. I'm still mad about it years later. Um, Midwest fancy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a friend that lives in, in VC and they have a, a PO box in Blaine, Washington, which is right across the border. And they come down and they order stuff all the time. That's like, that costs like 15 or $16 extra to get shipped to Canada or that won't get shipped to Canada because Canada is like, no, I don't think this is healthy for you. It's like the time I tried to send Trader Joe's snacks to a, a friend of ours in Norway and it got sent back. Because Norwegians were like, nah. Well, you wow. were going to do that to me. You were going to send me a bunch of uh, Trader Joe's stuff and other food stuff to Australia. And I, I told you, I was like, don't do that. One, it's going to be really, really fucking expensive to ship that here. It's going to take months and months. And then there's a good chance that they're just going to turn it away because of biosecurity laws. What a time to be alive. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. They keep talking about how it's a it's just one big world right now. Yeah. Hey man, I'm, I'm seeing the supply chain in my grocery store. The, the, the weird, it's hitting weird stuff uh, that like I would not expect, like dish soap. Like, like there's yeah. like three brands of dish soap that uh, we cycle through in our house. Uh, you know, we like them. They're in a pump bottle. They're like the combo hand hand soap and dish soap, um, so it doesn't like dry out your hands and stuff when you're doing the the dishes. And but all but those they've all been out of stock for for like uh over a month now it's like it's really bizarre stuff <laughs> yeah like the, the hysteresis of supply chain you know blockages has just been like on and on and on like at work we're just constantly dealing with that bullshit like trying to having to source some like little film or something like that and like or like a sheet of neoprene and like oh they don't make it anymore the whole world needs some and it's like oh fuck like mm. yeah. also uh i couldn't get uh louisiana hot sauce and that really fucked me up for a while. <laughs> That's a bummer. <laughs> Jason, I'll just send you a recipe to make I it. I mean, I know itself. how to make it, uh, but you can't beat the, the convenience of the little glass bottle that costs like two bucks. <laughs> yeah. Economies of scale are a thing here. That's right. We'll, that's we'll right. get into that. that yeah. That's that's probably a good segue. <laughs> I, that is a good segue. Segway. 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 Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 229 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by producer Jeremy. Ed is unfortunately not able to join us because he's currently doing Snowpiercer on a big train in Europe right now. The last I heard from him, he was uh, uh, rallying with a number of other uh, passengers in the, in the caboose of the train and they are progressively working their way forward through each train car, um, knocking out the hierarchies of class represented in the ticketed passenger cars. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I lost contact with Ed when he was working his way through the, the petty bourgeoisie. Um, and so hopefully Godspeed. He has, a uh, 
you know, slain a few car dealership owners uh, and big boat lovers uh, and has made his way to the to the engine of the car. Um, I'm sure we'll get a report from Ed uh, in the in the future. Godspeed uh, to Ed in his righteous journey on a big train in Europe. Um, but in lieu of that, uh, I am very pleased to be joined by uh, a returning champion. I think coming coming back in for his uh, his fourth episode now, which is rank, which I think is at the top of the leaderboard. Uh, and one of our favorites around here, it is Nick Chavez, uh, who is a mechanical engineer by day, uh, organic intellectual by night, uh, <laughs> and, um, to come on and talk to us about another just absolutely uh, amazing and magisterial uh, essay he's got in Brooklyn Rail. So Nick, thank you again for coming back. Yeah, guys, thank you for having me. I'm uh, glad to give, be given the opportunity to defend my title. Yeah, <laughs> that's dude. right that's right you're like uh at this point right now you uh dave david banks and wendy lou are like unofficial members of the tm tmk <laughs> podcast at this point you have your advisory that's board that's right that's right you you've been elevated from guest to uh occasional co-host at this point especially because this is the the second time you've come on where ed uh, just happens to be indisposed, and so you you are you are uh, you are now like a, an a, an unofficial official co-host of of the program, Nick. Oh wow, what a what a surprise! I wouldn't want to step on Ed's toes, but it's such an honor. <laughs> he would be, he'd be, he'd, he's happy to welcome you into the fold. So uh, no, I'm 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 really excited. Uh, that you're back on because that also means that we can do like communist corner over here uh, <laughs> and get really deep into one of my favorite things to talk about and things I don't really get to talk about nearly enough in part because there's just simply not enough people around who can or would want to get deep into it with me the way you do but like really the the like nitty gritty details of the operations of capitalist production and the transition to what that might look like uh, as communist production, right? Like I, you know, we talk a lot about, in, you know, in the show, but also just like political economists in general, uh, DSA members, you know, whatever, like these kind of, you know, general leftist uh, cliques, uh, depending on, you know, if on your, on your spectrum from DSA to ultra left, uh, <laughs> like, like talking about capitalism production like talking about capitalism as you know this uh as as a means of production as a force of production as relations of production right a lot of talk of production not a lot of talk though i don't think not nearly enough into like the actual like mechanics of what of how production works and how it's organized like in not as an abstract thing but as a like actual real material thing uh in society that is organized in like very specific ways in a multiplicity of different ways uh and must be reorganized accordingly uh and and your essays that you've been that you've been publishing in Brooklyn Rail, um, this latest one, which I have a link to in the episode, but it's called Technical Expertise and Communist Production. Uh, and then your previous one on engineers, um, kind of looking at the role of engineers within capitalism and within communism, uh, have really done, have, have really 
get gotten nitty into that nitty gritty. Uh, and I mean, this is in part because like, this is, this is your job. You're not a dilettante. Uh, and it's like you, uh, you are a mechanical engineer. So you've got that real like shop floor kind of knowledge of, of these systems of production. Um, but also, uh, in a way that is, uh, an enviable, uh, knowledge of, of Marxist political economy and Marxist thought, um, in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, I see uh, if I had, you know, taken the the, the Robert Frost, you know, the, the, the different forks in the road, um, what you're doing now is what I hope uh, if I had made some uh, different decisions, um, I would have been doing because I don't think it. I don't think I've talked about it a lot. I know I've mentioned it in like very, very like, like, you know, single digit episodes of TMK, but uh, I initially went to college um, at Rochester Institute of Technology as a polymer chemistry and chemical yeah. engineering major. Um, and so I, you know, while you're a mechanical engineer, I thought I was going to be getting in there doing like, I was very interested in material science and material uh, fabrication. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've also, you know, was the kind of guy who's taking like welding classes at a trade school, like on the side, like on weekends, just because I was like, I want to know how to weld. That seems like a really interesting ability to have. Yeah, welding bangs. It's a good time. Welding is fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I often joke that like I, I entered college as a, a, a material scientist and left college as a dialectical materialist. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but I did so in a way where I completely like changed it where I, you know, I don't do engineering or material science as my, as my day job. Um, but you, uh, you, you do, you do do engineering as your day job. Um, while also, uh, kind of, you know, having this deep knowledge of, of Marxist political economy and dialectical materialism and all that. And I don't know, I just, I just see in you, Nick, that if I had taken a different pathway, I hope, uh, I would be, uh, you know, what, what you're doing now. Well, thank you. I'm very flattered. You know, we all, we all gotta, you know, pick a path that works for us. Um, it was, I, it's funny. I, there, I could have ended up majoring in humanities. I was kind of like on the fence between a couple of things before picking, uh, you know, my engineering major. And yeah, I wonder, I wonder how differently things would have worked out for me. in in that regard, that'd be, that'd be kind of funny if I'm the one sitting in front of a, you know, if I'm the one hosting a podcast and you're the one, you know, telling me about, uh, you know, I mean, so chemical engineering is kind of like the, a very fixed capital intensive uh, domain of engineering. It'd be kind of funny if you'd be on the other end of the podcast telling me all about, you know, the, the intricacies of, you know, uh, of managing the fixed capital of a chemical plant or something like that. Exactly. But thankfully, yeah. the roles are reversed. And now you can be the one to tell <laughs> us about all of the, uh, the, the, the deep mechanical details of uh, fixed capital production, uh, and all, all the different uh, arrangements that that can take. And um, yeah, I, I mean, there's a there's a lot to get into uh, in your essay. Um, I, 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 you know, I really want to get deep into it. I also do want to say, and this is something I said to you in, in, in the, uh, in, in my, when we were, uh, talking off the pod, uh, that I, I'm also extremely glad that you are able to publish stuff like this, stuff that is like, you know, really long essays that are really detailed about very technical things while also being able and allowed to take, uh, uh like a very, like, 
outwardly, you know, communist Marxist uh, orientation to your analysis without ever having to spend half your essay justifying why uh, this is like why you are not the great Satan uh, for uh, advocating yeah. a like pro-communist or, you know, a, commu- a, a, a revolutionary communist uh, perspective. Brooklyn Rail, man, they're, they're occupying a space that is uh, uh, not a lot of the other people are occupying. It's you, it's, you know, Jason Smith, it's uh, your know, past guest, Phil Nil. All, all of you have recently had uh, essays that are very long, uh, deep dives into different, different levels uh, and topics of communist political economy. I love it. Yeah, I mean, well, the editor is Paul Maddock Jr., so I mean... You know, it's kind of kind of hard to find. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very niche political corner, but it's uh, it's we're all lucky to be kind of more or less enough in sync with each other to be able to kind of publish a lot of these things in the same space. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, yeah. I'm pretty happy that I have a space for these kind of things to be published, and that uh, Paul is gracious enough to to edit my my sprawling essays down to something still pretty sprawling, but but manageable. I'm I'm fortunate to have gotten the opportunity to work with him. He's a great editor. That's great. That's great. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into the let's get into the essay then. Um, you know, the, the the as I said, the title is technical expertise and communist production. I just want to read a little, like like a, a you know part of a paragraph from the beginning of the essay that I think really lays out what's what you're interested in getting into uh, in in this piece and what what we're going to be kind of explicating over this episode and perhaps the next, um, where you write, quote, distributed throughout the world's workforce is a colossal amount of useful knowledge and experience that keeps capitalist production chugging along. This vast body of knowledge contains the practical know-how for not only our present capitalist society, but the establishment of a new society where the production and distribution of goods is rationally planned for the maximization of human well-being. This new productive process can only prioritize the general welfare of the human species through the active participation and cooperation of individuals holding all types of relevant expertise, knowledge, and relationships to the productive process itself. Such a society is called communism. So I think within that is like a pretty big statement about the the kind of what we might think of as the organic composition of capital or maybe the epistemological composition of capital. This, this sense that with capitalism is not just a, an immense accumulation of commodities as Marx, you know, described it, uh, nor is it just a, uh, an immense like world factory, right? Like, like a bunch of machines, uh, and, and factories producing stuff. Like, First and foremost, capitalism is uh, at its base, and um, as you talk about it, a you know a a colossal amount of knowledge and experience and expertise about how production happens, uh, how distribution and circulation happens, how implementation and use happens. All of these different things about like actually turning uh, things into 
things that can be exchanged with exchange value and use value, right? Like, you know, capitalism is, if anything, the kind of alchemy of, of, of commodity production. It's taking, um, taking commodities, turning them into money, uh, for the purpose and then turning that into commodities and then turning that into more money. Uh, it's taking some set, set of things, uh, and changing that into some other qualitatively different set of things in terms of, you know, raw materials being turned into some other output. Um, but also in that is a lot of kind of the immaterial cognitive knowledge uh, uh, that is necessary for enacting this kind of alchemical process. Um, and I, I think that... I would also venture to say that like that, that kind of stuff, while, you know, while, while it gets, it's, it's talked about abstractly again, and a lot of like our leftist analysis and, and, you know, it's all, and you know, any, any good left analysis worth its salt is always on the side of the worker, always holding up the worker, always, um, you know, extolling the, the, you know, the, the abilities of the workers, you know, and, you know, things like unskilled labor is, is such a misnomer. Um, and it's a way of degrading, uh, degrading and justifying the degradation of workers and stuff, you know, all of that. But, but I also don't think that our, um, political economy analysis, uh, often venture enough into the kind of political epistemolo uh, epistemology uh, of capital um, and the, 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 the really deep interlinking of that economy with that epistemology, of that knowledge with production. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, we could enter your essay through many different ways, but I, I, I guess just right off the bat, more like what, what made you want to like write this piece? Why, why focus on uh, analyzing this kind of dynamic or this relation within, uh, within capitalism and its, its relation to some you know, potential communist uh, future? That's a good question. So I think what I could probably start with is saying that, so all that, all that big technical, the big amount and body of technical expertise that keeps capitalism running along um, you know, that's, that's fundamentally it's concrete characters conditioned by capital. I mean, you know, capital is a, it's a, it's kind of a, it's like a logical system where that, you know, it, its own parts kind of continue this process of making all the other parts behave in this constant cycle of capital accumulation. Like you would, like you talked about, uh, you know, getting money, investing it to make things uh, and to modify things that you can then sell for more money and so on and so forth. The thing is, the reason I wanted to write this is because so that that dynamic right there where the the concrete character of production is molded by the abstract character of capital, um, that's a very, very important thing that I think uh, now in the Anglophone Marxist world, at least, Marxism has moved away from the shop floor and kind of into academia. Um, there are reasons for that are structural. I don't think that's necessarily any particular person's fault. Um, and obviously I have no, no problem with academics being Marxists. I mean, someone's, someone's gotta be better than nobody. Um, and so, but the thing is, I think a lot of the fact that so many Marxists are not, uh, connected to productive processes, there's a bit of a, um, there's a lot of misunderstandings, I think about what it means for, uh, you know, for how things actually work within a capitalist system. I, a lot of people's understanding how factories work is like a century out of date, I feel like. Um, and so, but then when people 
talk about production in the abstract insofar as people actually do. A lot of academics don't even consider, a lot of academic Marxists don't even really consider the productive process. They focus a lot on kind of subjectivity and identity, which is important and noteworthy and interesting. But, um, you know, the thing that underpins all of this is, is production. That's what makes capitalism possible. That's what makes communism possible. And so when people talk about uh, industrial production in the abstract, uh, it's it's difficult when they keep so abstract that nothing that, that you can't really draw out any meaningful concrete conclusions from these highly abstract categories. And a big part of that is a lot of people just don't know enough about the concrete to really get down in there. And so that's kind of since I'm fortunate enough to be kind of in that or maybe in some days, maybe unfortunate enough to be like in the weeds of that. I, I feel like I can bring that perspective and help some of these uh, these conversations that happen. What's important for me is that, uh, yes, capital concretely molds the character of productive processes and uh, communism in so far as far as communism is the negation of uh, the very fundamental profit logic that keeps capital operating. We have to talk about what that means as far as transforming productive processes. Production is where the capital circuit happens. That's like that's like the very heart of it. And if we want to have a communist society, we have to not only break that circuit, but recompose a new, not necessarily a circuit, but a new uh, mode of operating that sustains itself on its own logic that's separate from the logic of capital. Because a lot of uh, communists, both contemporary and historical, especially historical, I mean, I, I, I call out Lenin a little bit here in this piece, um, understand, like they, they understood the, the rationalization process as engendered by capital on the productive process as something that, uh, that, you know, communist leadership seizes. And then just like, you just, you flip a big switch, you, you pull a big lever from capitalism to communism and then boom, you've, you've done it, you've succeeded. And then, uh, you just further amplify the rationalization process, which, um, I don't think there's complete there. That's not completely a bad idea, but in an unqualified sense, that is a very bad idea. Um, and I think it's important for people who actually work with this stuff to be able to talk about it rather than letting, you know, lawyers like Lenin who don't know anything about it get to have their say. Damn. Coming in with the heat for Lenin already. Yeah. Off, sorry. I, yeah. Off the bat. I, I'm getting a little sectarian. I need to, I need to remember <laughs> this is, this is a, this is a bit open tent, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now let's get, we get sectarian when you're on Nick, you're at DMK does try to stay out of the sectarian battles, but we, we wage those battles as proxy wars. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but no, I mean, the you you calling out Lenin though, in, that's in the context of you know Lenin was quite uh, enamored by Taylorism, um, the exactly. kind of scientific management, right? And and the idea that you can you know just marshal uh, like quite literally take and I take a system of rationalization like Taylorism and deploy that for. Uh, for communism, right? Like instead of deploying Taylorism, a system created by and for uh, capitalist ends, what if we just took that and applied it for communist ends? What, what if instead of rationalizing the labor process um, to uh, uh, contribute to uh, hyper exploitation and hyper control of labor, what if we just use that to contribute to better production of, of, of socially beneficial goods? Like that, I mean, it's somewhat simplistic, but also that was 
Lennon's kind of uh, you know simplistic <laughs> idea around the the seizing of of Taylorism, and it didn't work. Uh, there's a lot of strong uh, arguments, both you know historical uh, and political, economic, right? Like empirical and theoretical, um, that this really did actually contribute to uh, the kind of system of, of uh, inhuman rationalization that we saw in uh, in the Soviet Union. You called it, you know, open the door for the counter-revolutionaries um, within the, the kind of the Soviet production system um, to uh, essentially, you know, I, I, I think it became very clear, uh, especially as we get into the mid uh 1900s that rather than doing communism it was you know the soviet union was trying to do capitalism but better than the capitalist right and and we could i think rightfully blame some of that on this idea that you can just you know a, a drum i like to be as well very similar to you nick is that there is no big switch that you can turn that you can like flip in the factory where it's like man this switch the whole time was on the capitalist setting and nobody thought to turn it onto communism uh there isn't like you can't do that there's no big switch and i think it also gets into something you talk about in the essay around uh you write that arresting capitalist production alone is not enough as a revolution as a revolution incapable of posing an alternative mode of producing and distributing goods will quickly die off as people cannot satisfy their basic needs let alone live a better life than they experienced under capitalism and i, I this is also something you know to say that somewhat differently um is that there's a really abstract academic preoccupation with like seizing the means of production right and i think i think people mean this whether they mean it whether they know it or not in two different ways right uh you know if we play with those words seize in the t in the sense of stop stop yeah. the means of production but seize also in the means of take take the means of production those are two necessary things to change capitalism, to enact some kind of revolutionary shift, but they are, they are not, they are necessary, but not sufficient. And I think people, uh, treat them as both necessary and sufficient, right? Like you need to seize in the sense that you need to stop and take, but then through, what are you going to do with it? Right? Are you then going to just keep running the machinery with new under new man? You know, are you going to hang up the, the 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 great big under new management banner on the global factory, um, but not really change anything in terms of the the composition of uh, of capital or the production process? Or are you going to seize it in the sense of stop and take the means of production for the purpose of? reconfiguring it, rejiggering it, re-engineering it, uh, turning it into something different, which requires, you know, seeing what, what works, seeing what you can tweak, what you can uh, just kind of, you know, what are the tools that you can use as they exist? What are the things that need to be completely re-engineered or built from the ground up? And what are the things that need to be thrown away? Right. Where it's like, you know, this is not useful for us or our, our, for our means or our ends. Um, and I don't I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, your essay does a lot to push 
into that 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 area of asking those questions, laying out some thought experiments about what that might look like in practice, getting a really good, strong material understanding of this, like not the not the composition of knowledge and its relationship to different modes of production. Um, but I, I think you're right that I think unfortunately a lot of our analysis only ever stops at the the seizing point we're going to stop it and we're going to take it and then from there uh you know the the old well you know it's not up to me to write the recipes for the cooks of the future um i mean that's true to a degree but that is also a a, a cop-out that people love to (laughs) love to lean on and so that's um well, I'll get I'll get the rest of my sectarianism out of the way now, so I can I can be clear headed later. But <clears throat> while I'm while I'm criticizing, you know, the tendency for some people to want to just simply switch the lever from capitalism to communism and keep the actual productive apparatus the same, um, I, I think you brought on an important point. It's you know it's it's not just about you know stopping this kind of you know our productive industrial system. I mean the industrial system is what makes communism possible. I'm, I'm extremely unsympathetic to the notion that um, we can return to kind of like a quasi pre-capitalist or like a low tech mode of living that, um, you know, is obviously would be more environmentally uh, like ecologically conscious, but then realistically speaking, that's, that's not, you're not going to do that without billions of people dying. And if you do that, you're going to be in a situation where, you can't actually have, you don't have the productive capacity anymore to actually give people a better life than they were living under capitalism. So it's, uh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely not one of those, uh, you know, just shut the whole thing down and start over type of people. That's, that's, that's the whole point. The whole point of Marxism is that we have the industrial capacity, unfortunately, because of capitalism, that's just how history shaped out. But the idea is to take the things of, of industrial capacity that give us the potential for a, a more comfortable, better quality life and there's, you know, many things there that, that can do that and then subject it not to the abstract rationale of capital, but to a concrete, you know, directly humanitarian logic that's, that's rational, you know, and it's not just rational by this one kind of purview of, of profit. It's rational by we can account for ecological concerns. We can account for the safety of people who do the labor. We can account for, you know, the nutrition in the food. There's all these things that can be rationally considered and weighed against each other. Um, and rather than all being just kind of, you know, things you sweep under the rug, if you're a capitalist, the, the point of, um, the point of looking at production this way is so in my essay, I kind of draw out the, there's two kind of main paradigms I draw out. I draw out, I, I look at, uh, what's, what's called low mix, high volume, and then high mix, low volume, um, Manufacturing, and so the reason for that is because the question of how a cap or how a communist society might run, um, you know, Jason Jason articulated the the notion that like you know we can't be the the you know coming up with the the recipes of the future, and in a sense that's uh, like that's you know that's both a wise and also a a you know cop out uh, kind of mentality. Like there's there's ups and downs to it. the The wisdom of that statement, of course, is that like there's a how things shape out in the future are inherently dependent on things that, uh, you know, that happen today and in the, in the future, in the future between now and then that we can't predict. And those, the concrete unfolding of history is what concretely determines, uh, you know, future productive arrangements. But then, you know, if we just throw our hands up and say, I don't know, it'll work itself out. Then obviously that's, that's, that's just abdicating 
you know, it's seeding the space to people who may want to just, you know, reimpose capitalism or something worse. And that's obviously not an option to politically, um, if you're a Marxist. And so the idea here is that, um, I look at these two paradigms as to kind of draw out how expertise is structured across the industrial workforce uh, in a broad sense. Obviously, it's going to depend a lot on the particularities of any particular firm or manufacturing line. Um, but then from there, the idea is to talk about if we were to have a you know revolutionary situation that actually poses a real threat to, to capitalism at a fundamental level, how those those knowledge um, kind of gradients, I guess, across time and space would manifest in a revolutionary activity and then how that might change over the course of how, how, you know, society goes on. And as, uh, as the ability for capital to kind of like resubsume things back into itself is, uh, is shattered and beaten back by maybe uh, I guess what you could maybe call like a counter subsumption by a communist productive system, uh, you know, how, how that might continue to change and how things will keep moving going forward. So I totally forgot what question you asked me, Jathan, but uh, I, I hope I answered it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, let, let's get into these different modes of, of, of manufacturing that you lay out because in the intro to the piece, you kind of, you know, you lay out at, at its base, you know, the capitalist system, you know, we, we are well aware that, uh, you know, I think any any anybody listening to the podcast is is aware of some kind of class based analysis of capitalism, right? Where you're like, what is capitalism? Well, you know, like we might define it as something, you know, as a system that is, you know, driven by a profit motive, right? Like get get as much money as you possibly can in the cheapest way possible, uh, you know, and and along with that comes you know, a, a kind of social relation that's like a, you know, a, cla- a hierarchical class system, right? Where, you know, you've got, you've got the, the capitalist at the top and the, the, the great many uh, workers um, who are the, the kind of base of this, right? And, and I think, you know, broad sense, all of that is true, of course. Uh, but I think we can dig into that even deeper in that, like, you know, within uh, the, within a factory, within a manufacturing, uh, facility, we might say, right? Cause, cause I think you're also right. Like, you know, if I say factory, that does kind of harken back to like an industrial revolution or like, you know, a kind of understanding of the modes of production that's like a hundred years old. I think that was a really astute thing you said there, uh, Nick, where you like for many, you know, academic Marxists, uh, their idea of like how production works is like a hundred years outdated where I think we do have in our minds some kind of like, you know, some, some kind of, uh, maybe updated, like aesthetically updated version of a, uh, of a factory, right. Of, of, of the kinds of factories that like Marx and Engels were writing about that, like, you know, maybe someone like E.P. Thompson was writing about in the making of the English working class, like, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But like, Production looks very different now than it, than it did then. You know, even if we think about like, you know, the, the, the places where there are factories, uh, you know, thinking about somewhere like China, right? Where like, that's where a lot of production happens and that's where a lot of mass manufacturing happens in the, in a kind of factory sense. Like even that, even that kind of those modes of production and those manufacturing processes look very different 
than they did, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. Of course they do. Um, and, and, you know, and, and it's not all the same. It's not all uniform. It's not like, you know, all factories are, you know, uh, kind of, you know, isomorphic with each other, except, you know, some factories produce diapers and some factories produce, uh, cars, right? But otherwise there, it's all, it's all the same. It's all the same factory. It's all the same types of like machinery just retooled or built specifically to, to do something else. But otherwise it's like socially, relationally, it's the same, no matter what is being produced. But that's not the case at all. There is actually a very, uh, high, like, both complex, intricate, and variegate, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of distribution and hierarchy and relations of knowledge uh, of, pos- of 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 you know uh, uh, of work, of labor, of machinery, of expertise, of decision making um, within the within different factories doing different stuff, and this kind of stratification of technical knowledge this is very nuanced uh, and it differs depending on what what how how manufacturing is organized right and i think this is really important because as we'll get into this deeper uh you know specific ways of organizing manufacturing lead themselves to specific types of social relations, specific types of stratifications and hierarchies of workers and managers of, you know, expertise, of knowledge, of ownership within that, but also very different abilities for production and production for very different ends, right? Uh, and this is also why, you know, this is when it starts getting much more complicated because it starts getting much more material uh, in terms of talking about manufacturing, where it's like, you know, if we say we want to seize the means of production, which means of production? What kind of means of production? Production in what way for what purposes? You know, what that, that we have to start asking those questions. Um, and you, it, it, I think it's very interesting how you are able to like complicate this in a really, uh, you know, pun intended productive way, uh, simply by laying out, uh, a, a typography of two, right? It's not like you're like laying out this like huge table, this like huge typography that's like, well, you see, there's there's ten columns and eight rows, and depending on where we're at in the, the in the grid system, depends on what kind of manufacturing uh, uh you know system or process that we're working with. It's like no, you're doing a very simple like uh you know two by two is it's mix and volume, right? It's you know. It, you know, is is it what what's you know is the is it high, it's high and low mix and volume so that that that's very simple but it already starts making the our understanding a lot more nuanced and a lot more uh your know, material um to 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 kind to lean back on that um so maybe we may maybe lay out to us the very kind of your introduction of this terminology of 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 high mixes and and you know high mix high uh, volume low mix low volume and the kind of different formulations of those like lay out this terminology and then we'll get into the specific um kind of a uh, uh you know 
organizations of those that you dig into. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the terms, these terms are, uh, it's how we refer to it in, in manufacturing. You know, if you, if you talk to someone who's like a manufacturing engineer or like a, you know, is designing some kind of product that's going to be manufactured in some capacity and you say high mix, low volume versus low mix, high volume, they'll, you know, usually they'll know what you're talking about. Um, and so when we talk about mix, so, uh, actually, let's talk about volume first. So volume is pretty obvious. It's just the quantity of crap that you're going to manufacture. Uh, is it low? Is it high? Or somewhere in between, you know, low versus high. Uh, mix is where things get, that's where the complexity really comes in. Uh, it's where mix is the the diversity of, I guess, uh, items that you're either making or processing in your facility or in your line, really, really in the manufacturing line. And so uh, if we look at... Um, high mix, low volume. So high mix, low volume, that basically means, so you have a large diversity of things being made in relatively low quantities. Um, and when I, I'm looking at high mix, low volume and low mix, high volume as kind of the two main paradigms. Uh, and in my essay, I detail why, because these are, these are kind of the two ends of a spectrum in a way. Um, high mix, high volume is really just a bunch of low mix, high volume and high mix, low volume lines in a trench coat together. And then uh, low mix, low volume kind of doesn't really exist much. Or if it does, it's like not economically very meaningful anymore. Uh, and maybe it was in the past, but so on the two ends of the spectrum, you have uh, low mix, high volume, and then uh, high mix, low volume. And I'm probably going to misspeak at some point and call one thing the other, just because it's really hard to keep all those words straight. I'm just, <laughs> so if I say something nonsensical later, just, uh, just, just make it make sense in your head. Uh, which actually, you know, I should, that's just a disclaimer I should say for everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, uh, basically, so when you have high mix, low volume, that's the kind of thing where, uh, we can pick some examples would be, for example, like a, like a machine shop, like a CNC, a place that has a bunch of CNC mills and CNC lathes and things of that nature. Um, or like a 3d printer farm. Uh, those are examples because you are in the business model there is to, you have machines that can be set up and reconfigured uh, easily. At least they're designed to be set up and reconfigured easily for, you know, sometimes the setup can get complicated and that's where expertise comes in. But the idea is that you just set up your machine for a particular run of an item and then you run however many of them you need to run. So you make, you print out 50 uh, of some component on your 3d printer. And then once that's done, you set up the 3D printer to go run another type of part that looks totally different, but is still within the operating parameters of your of your 3D printer. And then you hit go, and then that's and then you do that, and you do that all day every day. And um, that requires a lot of expertise to ru to run that kind of shop. I mean, now let me let me clarify. All production lines require a crap load of expertise. It's but it's where the expertise is located that I want to get into. But um, for the for the opposite case, a um, a low mix, high volume, that's kind of, this is more in line with what people traditionally think of in terms of mass manufacturing. It's where you have, you have your, um, a lot of expertise and time and effort and materials invested up front to, uh, I guess money invested to upfront, um, in order to create a manufacturing line that is very specifically dedicated to making one small, like one particular component or like a small or like a related family of components that are very similar to each other. And then this line can be, you know, be all the way from like raw materials all the way to maybe like final assembly. It just kind of depends on how the supply chain works out. But basically you where so in a, 
in a high mix, low volume situation, uh, you need to depend on the operators and technicians that work the machines to be able to dynamically handle a lot of different things to, they need to know, like, if I'm making this kind of part, I need to do this kind of thing on the machine, or I need to make the machine do X, Y, and Z. And it's, it's very much a matter of having to take the diversity of inputs and then integrate them into uh, a process that gets you your desired output to whatever specifications are handed to you as a technician. But if you are a line operator on a, one of these mass lines, um, that I don't mean mass line in the Maoist sense. I mean mass line in the uh, uh, <laughs> and like a mass manufacturing line. You know any variability that you introduce for a high number of parts uh, is bad because you you want when it comes to mass manufacturing the name of the game is uh, repeatability. You can't have variability introduced. Like the entire art of manufacturing engineering for high volume production is the art of reducing variability as much as you can, and it's a very very sophisticated science. Um, it's it's and it's a tedious pain in the ass if I, if I can, I can speak from experience, but um, the idea is that if you're actually operating a machine on a high volume line, you typically, it's typically very, very boring and they don't want you to know a lot. Like they don't want you to be making a lot of decisions. Your decision should be, it's usually just like, do I hit the button now? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Hit the button. And then, all right, is it time to hit the button again? Hell yeah. Here I go. Uh, it's, it's very <laughs> simple um, because you know, when you have lots and lots of parts and lots of people working on these parts, any, any kind of variability that they introduce is, like I said, it's, it's going to cause problems. So the idea is to set up tooling that you, as an operator, don't configure. Like the engineers will have it nice and configured so that it can repeatedly do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and you have processes in place to measure, you know, variability and like drift in parts over time. Uh, that's the, the entire QC process is uh, basically that. And, you know, QA is like, QA is typically separate from QC, but then it's like from a, from a holistic standpoint, they have to make sure that these mass manufacturing lines can pump these things out um, in such a way. And so for these high volume lines that are producing small, like variability in parts, so uh, uh, low mix, high volume, you have a lot of expertise concentrated in uh, engineering and quality personnel and uh, you'll, you'll have some technicians that, you know, gain expertise, but then you have a big army of people that are usually paid a lot less because that's kind of the goal here is like, you need to minimize the cost of your labor also, um, if you're a capitalist. And so, and these people are meaningfully excluded from opportunities to learn a lot. And uh, it's simply because, you know, all the decisions are made for them. All the decisions are built into the machines, the machines decide what you do and how you do it. You just have to like hit the go button on it. And it's a, it sucks to work on one of those lines. I'll say, um, it's not fun and you get paid less. Um, but then on the other hand, if we look at the opposite case, a, um, a high mix, low volume situation, um, you know, by virtue of having to constantly reconfigure these machines. And, uh, it's not just like the type of labor that's different and the expertise that's different. The machines are very different. Uh, you know, uh, in my essay, I kind of give the example of a, of a sheet metal bracket and how, if you're going to do it, if you're going to manufacture a couple thousand of them, you'll probably make it very differently than how if you were to manufacture like, like a couple million of them. And so, and that's kind of the, the key, the key takeaway here is that for a high mix, low volume facility, you're going to have a lot of machines that are dynamically reconfigurable. Uh, and then uh, for a kind of mass manufacturing line, you're going to have a lot of machines that are kind of in a fixed architecture uh, or it would, it would take a lot of time and money and material to retool them. Uh, they only, 
it only makes sense to produce things with that kind of methodology as in a mass manufacturing setting, if you're planning on making like a bajillion of them. Uh, and, you know, cause you need to invest a lot of time and material into them. Whereas if you're going with like kind of a low, uh, a low production line that has more diversity to it, you still invest a lot of money in machinery, but it's machinery that you can dynamically reconfigure. You know, I could, I could talk about this for ages. Um, but the, the point of all this is the, what I'm getting at here, you know, in, in a, if you have a kind of situation of civil unrest, if I'm putting it politely, um, there's a seizure of the means of production. Uh, if you, if you have a kind of nascent communist system, the transformation of producing things from a capitalist way to a communist way is where, you know, profits no longer consideration. you you need to be producing things to immediately satisfy the needs of, you know, the people involved, not just the producers, but whoever they're producing for. If you have a starting little nucleus of, of communist revolution, uh, and if it's able to get some kind of productive uh, capacity to it, it's like, you know, we were, we were talking like the size of like a couple industrial zones or like a city. Uh, they need to be able to, pro- they're, they're going to need to produce a lot of different things in probably relatively small quantities. And the demand for what they're going to produce is going to be fluctuating very constantly. And uh, so you need people and machines that are capable of meeting that demand as it changes. Of course, you know, this is all assuming you can get the material inputs you need, which uh, that's a whole nother thing. Um, but the, the point is that a lot of kind of for, high mix, low volume um, production, you can kind of get a lot more freedom in how you make things. Uh, and you can, you, you're not, you don't necessarily have to make them in a way as you would under capitalism, but now just like with the lever switched over to, to communism, you can now design things to be made differently based off whatever material inputs are available to you at that moment of revolution. And so you have like, in, in my essay, I have the example of like, let's say a dock uh, gets, is like kind of the flashpoint and there's a bunch of shipping containers and you have a bunch of materials in there. Uh, if you have a couple machine shops and like a foundry next door, you can decide what to make based off um, you know the materials you have with the expertise of people who work at the machine shop or material handlers or whoever whoever has the relevant expertise here. But if you have a high volume production line, you realistically probably wouldn't be able to like run them because you're just going to be missing a lot of material inputs in the first place because a lot of high volume lines are dependent on kind of like initially made uh, sub-assemblies from earlier, uh, another part of the chain, which is and those sub-assemblies might come from an, another high-volume facility that's uh, also doing high-mix, or sorry, low-mix high-volume. Um, but sometimes they'll come from uh, from low-mix high-volume, and that's kind of the thing here. A lot of these processes kind of feed back and forth between each other in capitalism, um, but under a communist system, in like the initial outbreak, you probably wouldn't need as much as uh, as much high-volume production just because like, you wouldn't be able to run it, but then even if you could, um, you know, do you really need like eight quadrillion of like a specific chip meant to go in a very specific model of, of smartphone? Probably not. You just, you just don't need that many of them. Um, and even if you need a couple, I, I make the argument that it makes sense to dismantle a lot of mass manufacturing lines and then just take what's useful from them and then reconfigure them into, into kind of more dynamic, flexible, uh, low volume manufacturing lines. And then from there, that's, uh, as, as, you know, as capitalism is routed and you have more and more of a, of a self-sustaining communist system that gets, you know, more and more stable, uh, less and less turbulent, uh, you can then start to reintroduce more mass manufacturing, but you would do so in a way that, uh, logically accounts for, I guess, I guess rationally accounts for, 
uh, all sorts of different uh, competing requirements. It's it's no longer profit. It's everything other than profit. Now it's you know ecological concerns. It's like I said, it's uh, the health of people, both who live around the facility and then like who who work in the facility and like you know do people want the things that this high volume facility makes? The uh, like for example, if you're going to make if you know you would probably only do very high volume manufacturing for stuff that people all over the planet really need things like, uh, and I think we talked about this a bit in my last time I was on, but like, if you're going to make like a screw, like, you know, you don't need every single person in every tiny town to be able to like make a screw, you know, if it's probably okay. If like you have one factory in, you know, an entire region that makes screws, like that's okay. And so that, that's, that's a whole nother debate, I guess I can, we can get into maybe later, but yeah, the whole, the whole point of this is that like, Understanding how this expertise is is structured across the workforce um, and what types of facilities and how that expertise can be leveraged towards building a communist productive apparatus, which we can, I guess we could talk about that later too. Um, and, and what that means kind of more, more abstractly and concretely, that's kind of important. And this is a thing that just, I think a lot of Marxists have frankly no clue about, um, but I'd like them to, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from reading people who write things that I know nothing about. And I would like to think that these very important questions uh, could use someone informing um, other people on it. I, I agree with that sentiment a lot. Um, one point I wanted to make is like a universal anything would be great at this point because of the environmental costs that we're seeing with companies having proprietary this, proprietary that. I'm not thinking just like Apple with their charging cables, but, you know, certain manufacturers of like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just use power wheelchairs as an example. Every single manufacturer has a proprietary tool that you use to repair this part or another. And it just makes for like just incredible amounts of waste, probably tedious work for whoever's having to manufacture this little, little, just this tiny little thing that we all need to be able to fix this one thing. I, I think a lot of this raises as well some really interesting questions about like, the, the kind of maybe the the myths uh, versus realities of capitalist production, right? Because we could say that like, well, Nick, there's actually, the, you know, you are laying out a very romanticized view of, you know, low mix, high volume manufacturing versus, or, or uh, versus, you know, high mix, low volume. And, you know, and, and, oh, the, 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 the low mix, high volume is the devil for you, but the, the high mix, low volume, you know, that's, that's just your, uh, you know that that's your dream of uh, uh, of having these little autonomous society. You know, you could lay out this whole thing and say, "Well, you're what you're overlooking here, Nick, is that there's actually extremely good and rational reasons um, beyond the 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 mere vulgar, uh, you know, accumulation of profit um, for having these uh, low mix, high volume." manufacturing facilities be the dominant way that everything is manufactured, right? It's all about economies of scale. Uh, you know, standardization is good, actually. You know, you want things to be standardized and made to spec, uh, and, and you want it to be done um, in a way that most efficiently uses resources, uh, most efficiently um, takes advantage of the scale of production, uh, you know, uh, minimizes waste through those economies of scale, right? Like, you know, in other words, you could, there's, there's a, you know, 
a, a good neoclassical economist um, could really pose to you a lot of arguments to, that are like, you're overlooking why the the system exists in the way that it does. And you're just, you know, you're redounding all that back to the, you know, to the, to some vulgar profit motive versus um, we know the virtues of the division of labor. Uh, we know the virtues of economies of scale. Uh, and, and, you know, the, these, this is the most efficient way to both produce the supply and meet the demands within a, uh, a, a large global economy. Now, of course, I think that is itself a story uh, about how this stuff works, but I am curious what, what, you know, as somebody on the ground uh, in, in, in manufacturing, like what is your, what would your response to that intrepid neoclassical economist be? Besides, of course, you know, getting out of the way, the hurling of insults and fists and all of yeah, that. After, after I'm done with all that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I would actually, I would agree with quite a bit of it. And that's, that's kind of what differentiates in my opinion, um, you know, a, a, a Marxism that seriously contends with the, you know, the industrial capacity of the human species versus um, someone who is kind of a fetishist for decentralization uh, for its own sake. Because um, if you look at the primacy of localized, uh, non-specialized manufacturing, uh, and, you know, it, which is what you would kind of, when I say that's obligate from like a, a revolutionary standpoint, I mean that purely because that's how, like, contextually, that's how that would work in that kind of system. But there's nothing inherently better about that. There's just pros and cons to each. Um, the, you know, if we have a system, like I said earlier, where if we're all just doing like localized craft production, then like that just defeats the whole fucking purpose of, of communism. Like, I don't want to go live in the middle ages again. Like, you know, I don't, we don't need to all gather around the medieval freaking cauldron and, you know, for it's, it's, it's silly. It really is because I mean, and I, I, this is where I think a lot of people's ignorance really shows is because they don't understand that, you know, a, a lot of people, when they think of localized craft production, um, unless you want it to take all fucking day every day to like make anything useful, like it did for, you know, peasants in the, in the middle ages. And yes, I know they work, they, they had more vacation days than workers. I've seen the think pieces. Um, but like the, but the, the thing is like, they were dominated by a like low tech mode of producing that required them to, in order to meet their needs, to just spend a shit ton of time working, um, whether it was in agriculture or in like handicraft production. Um, and when people want a, a return to kind of handicraft production, whether they, that's what they know they want or not. Um, they don't realize that a lot of the things that make that easy and like fun to do in a, in, or that could be fun in a post-capitalist context is because there's already things that are pre-made for you in a, in a high volume setting. So, I mean, I, I was going back to the example of screws cause it's an obvious one, but to switch it up a little, like, you know, let's think about, you know, you, you need materials of some kind, whether you need some kind of like you know, cloth or textile, if you want to make some kind of clothing, or if you want to make, uh, if you want to make your own like electronics or whatever, like you're not, you're not going to do artisanal. Uh, I, I was joking, Phil Neil and I were, were talking about this the other day and we were joking about, uh, um, artisanal cobalt mining, uh, or something like that. Like, you know, or like, art, yeah, artisanal circuit board, you know, kind of manufacturing. Like you can, you can make circuit boards in your garage. That's something you can do now. You, you can get a router, you can get, I mean, you can, it's like a copper with like the, um, 
all the silicone on the outside of it and everything. And so you, 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 you mill that down to make your like copper traces and everything. And you, you know, you get your little device, you get the different devices and whether it's like through hole or if it's like surface mount, depending how you want to solder it in there, you, you put those all in and you solder them up and then you have like your circuit board that does whatever you need it to do. Um, but you know, that's, that's fine. That was fun. You did that in your garage. It does exactly what you need to do because you designed it. It's, it's a fun, decentralized, localized manufacturing. But where the hell did the, like, you know, all the, the stock come from to actually, you know, to route out of it, all the copper traces out of? What about all the actual, like, all the, the integrated chips you're putting onto it? Um, you know, unless you're going to go, like, full analog circuitry, like it's the, you know, 1960s again or something, you, you probably want, like, digital electronics. Um, these all have to be manufactured somewhere. Uh, and, the thing about a lot of high tech production. So if we look at something like a, like a bracket, like a sheet metal bracket, like I do in my piece here, you know, a sheet metal bracket is something you can do in a, a kind of like a, a lower tech way or a higher tech way. It just, you can do them both ways. It just depends what your priorities are, but let's say you're going to make like uh, some kind of, some kind of chip, like a, like an integrated circuit of some kind, like some kind of like a MOSFET or something. Uh, you know, you, I guess in theory, you could make one like one at a time, like in your backyard or something, but like why on earth? No one would want to do that. There's like no reason for that. So the, unless it's like to like flex or something, but, uh, and weird flex, but okay. Um, and so, so the thing is the complexity for making some types of things that, that are very high tech production processes to make like 200 of them is basically the same process as making like 200,000 of them. The only difference is like time and materials. Um, but like the actual process itself is the same and so, or very, very similar. And so for things like that, that, uh, you have a, a, a well understood, um, notion of how much variability is needed. And then like, you know, you need to make like this kind of MOSFET and that kind of MOSFET, um, you know, or, or this kind of like potentiometer or that kind of potentiometer, um, or this kind of encoder, that kind of encoder, uh, you, you know what you need to do. You just make like a bajillion of them. Um, and you know, yes, it'll, it'll, it'll require big investments of, um, you know, fixed capital materials. I mean, it wouldn't be fixed capital anymore. Be, you're in a communist system, but you need, you would, you would invest a lot of, uh, resources and by resources, that's both like material as well as like people's time. And then, you know, that's, that's labor that by doing it, that saves a sh everyone else a shit ton of labor, uh, later down the line. And so the, the analogy I like to use when, and I know that people listening to this podcast are generally sympathetic to, to, you know, anti-capitalist perspectives. But I mean, if I'm talking to someone who's, who, uh, you know, poses the question like, well, you know, without, without money and without profit, how, why would anyone actually do anything? Like the way, the thing I like to say is like, so like, let's say your toilet gets clogged at home, you know, do you, do you leave it clogged because no one's paying you to unclog it? Or do you, do you unclog your toilet? Like, which one do you do? And I know which one I'm doing and it's, I don't need a paycheck to make sure my toilet's not clogged. So, and you know, people do actually, because, because I'm a good Keynesian, I hire a plumber <laughs> every single time because I'm contributing to the economy. Well, there you go. But I'm not a Keynesian, but I, and, then, and then they just come over <laughs> and they, they take the plunger. No, they bring their own plunger because workers bring their own tools and then they unplug it, uh, uh, unclog the toilet. And then I pay them and I say, thank you, sir. Have a good day. And then I've contributed to the circulation of capital within a growing economy. Um, but the, you know, some of us are just built different, Nick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nick, I get the feeling that you're the same way I am where you, uh, you look up on YouTube how to fix something that needs to be fixed, and then you go get what you need to fix it and spend three hours getting frustrated at it until you you finally hit a wall and you do more reading or writing or reading or watching and then figure out what it was in the first place. 
and then realize that it's out of your league and you got to get someone to do it for you. I will neither confirm nor deny that I have uh, been in that situation many times, but yes, that's actually, yes, that, that's exactly that. Both at home and at work. There's been times at work where I'm like, no, I, I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm smart. I can figure this out. And then it's like, oh no, I just, you know, three hours later, I just need to go ask someone who knows how this works. And then some, some, some salty old person who's been doing it for like 50 years is like, oh yeah, I just, you know, it's, it's easy. But the, but that, so, but going back to the clogged toilet, like it's, you know, if, if we kind of scale that analogy up the, you know, we do things like we have needs and then, you know, we do things to satisfy those needs. And, uh, you know, in the case of a clogged toilet, it's pretty obvious you need to just unclog the damn thing. But like, if people have a need for, uh, you know, electronic devices, I think, I think, you know, we all want to live in a world that, you know, where electronics haven't stopped existing. I think we all, you know, for all the, all the terrible harm they cause under capitalism, um, you know, I think we can all envision a world in which computers and electronic devices uh, make the world much better. And, but those things need to be made somehow and not every single aspect of producing those things is going to be pleasant. And that's why, I mean, the way, and this is, this gets firmly into speculative territory and it's going to, this is all, you know, big disclaimer, but like the way I see it, you know, if everyone Every, every society is going to have a little bit of like labor that is not fun that needs to be doing, whether it's, you know, assembling circuit boards or whether it's going to be like cleaning the streets or whatever, you know, everyone, if you cut down on all like the superfluous bullshit that capitalism makes us do, um, including getting rid of like the redundancies created by IP, like you pointed out, Jeremy, uh, if, you know, if, if things are standardized, not because there's some kind of big governing body coming down saying you have to do everything in this one standardized fashion, but just because a lot of DIY communities already just recognize mutual standards, make everything easier. Like, you know, DIY hobbyists are fully aware that like, sometimes you just communally adopt a standard and then it like, you're good to go. Um, you know, you do things like that. Uh, and then it cuts, it cuts down to so much labor that's needed so that whatever's left, you know, you can just make it, it's, it's quick, it's short and you do everything in your power to make it as pleasant as possible. Um, I think gamifying, um, shitty labor is something that might be go a long way to make it more attractive. Um, you know, there's, there's a million ways that I could culturally shape out and I can't really like speculate on how all of them are. Cause they're going to be so dependent on a future. I, I can't really predict, but the idea is that, you know, the, the necessities of high volume manufacturing for, you know, living a comfortable industrial, living in a comfortable industrial society, uh, you know, they, they will require some, they will require some labor, I don't think anyone needs to be forced to. I think people will realize like, you know, Hey, if we want this thing, it needs to, someone needs to step up and do this and you know, who does it and how they do it and when they do it. And then those are all things that like have to be decided. And that's, that's what that's, you know, communism wouldn't be the abolition of politics. There'd still be like people deciding how this stuff is done, but like the stakes for political decisions become so much lower when like everyone's already always guaranteed food, shelter, you know, all the, all the like comforts of, of life. And if it's just a matter of like, all let's say like, okay, like we each once a week spend three hours doing this, this, you know, assembling circuit boards at the local circuit board assembly line, then, you know, we can all have really cool laptops or whatever, or I don't know what computation is going to look like in the future, but you get my drift. Yeah, it's it's about recon, uh, 
reframing the reasons why stuff is done such that it's not so alienated um nor so uh like like just in the basis of uh, of 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 its monetary value right in other words like you know it's as you're saying you do this specific piece this specific labor task now because it directly contributes to us having this other thing or service uh you know in in the future um or it contributes to the 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 well the 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 well uh maintenance and run and and operation of society right like i don't know just like these different these different ways of frame of even just framing it rather than being like you do this because you uh because you get this amount of money um and also by the way uh if you don't do this then you will die uh but if you do do this you will get enough money such that you will live a, a subsistence lifestyle so that you can continue to come back and do this really shitty job uh 60 hours a week um and never leave that station right like that that doesn't sound like a good system nor does that sound like a system that is actually incentivizing anybody to do anything It sounds like a no, system exactly. that's coercing people to do stuff, right? Like Yeah. Uh, and and I think that's the uh the capitalist myth here is that like, you know, I mean TMK spends a lot of time talking about how innovation is itself a a, a bullshit term and that like, you know, innovation is not something that is like, you know, the product the, the product of like, you know, capitalist incentives married with uh you know uh revelatory uh eureka moments married with this you know in indelible dry human drive to uh, to advancement or so you know it's like no innovation is the production of technologies for capitalist ends right like that's that's what it exactly. is and yeah. and much in the same that like a lot of the way that labor is organized now is not based on some like well you know or labor and production it's not based on something that like people would not do this job unless they were incentivized no for the most part people would not do this job whatever that job is unless they were coerced to um, by a system that required them to do that thing to live uh, and gave them a very small number of of options if any um, such that this was the only job available to them uh, and also like people don't produce things um You know, it's not like all oh, people only produce things unless they're incentivized by profit to do so. Like, no, people produce a very specific set of things in a very specific way for very specific purposes because of the profit motive, right? And that 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 forecloses all of the other uh, sets of things, ways, and purposes that production might be done if the profit motive were not not only the most dominant or the most attractive one but just simply the only one uh that 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 is uh, uh, uh available right in the system like all of these things i think are really important and they become you know these like kind of abstract critiques of political economy uh i think the like become more concrete when we do actually look at the ways in which they're like the actually existing uh ways that manufacturing is organized in society and how these things are already exist uh you know like like you know not all manufacturing is the low mix high volume manufacturing that we 
that is in that's the vision in our mind when we think about manufacturing, right? I, I think the the own the certainly the dominant, if not the only vision uh, in most people's minds, if they have some idea of how fact of of how manufacturing works, is the like. I love Lucy, uh, like chocolate conveyor belt mode, right? Where it's like, <laughs> you know, like you're on the conveyor belt and you're putting chocolates that are coming in the conveyor belt into a box, right? You're doing this one discrete task and you're doing it thousands, tens of thousands of times a day. And you need to do it the same exact way at the same pace. Uh, and then sometimes that conveyor belt speeds up. And what does that mean? Well, you have to speed up too, right? And like, that's just how manufacturing works. And then you've got a boss that's coming around and like yelling at you because you're not working fast enough or you're not working same enough, right? You, you, you're not doing the same thing in the same way. Uh, you know, the, the, I think this is like, this is very much a, uh, you know, a black and white, like, you know, in the sense of like, I love Lucy, or I also think of like Charlie Chaplin's you know, film, Modern Times, right? Like, you know, th this is like, I mean, and there's a reason why this is why our, our dominant visions of how manufacturing happens, uh, why this is our dominant vision of how manufacturing happens. And it's because like, you know, that's a dominantly capitalist way of manu of doing manufacturing. Um, and it is yeah. a way that a lot of stuff is manufactured, but for very capitalist reasons as well. Like, you know, you, you've laid out like, yes, like we will absolutely need uh, low mix, high volume manufacturing and production of, of certain things. It would be absurd to do away with that. Now, what the question is, how do we organize that low mix, high volume, uh, manufacturing and in what per, in what ways, right? Like, I yeah. think there is a big myth that your piece really uh, helps us crystallize here because it making a, it makes us, it forces us to actually think about the production process as a concrete thing that, uh, that, that happens in certain ways. Um, there's a, there's also the, the, the myth of capitalist efficiency or the myth of capitalist economies of scale, um, where like, you know, there's nothing necessarily inherent to high, you know, a, a high mix or no, rather a low mix, high. I see what you mean, Nick. It's very easy yeah. to get these things mixed up. <laughs> yeah, I do this. For, I talk about this stuff for a living, and like, it just, oof, man. Like, <laughs> but it's very easy to think there's something essential or inherent to a low mix, high volume production process that like has these baked in efficiencies and economies uh, within it. Like, there is to a degree. But I think there's also like other reasons why that's the predominant mode of manufacturing capitalism that go beyond efficiency, go and go beyond profit. You know, uh, because like the the fact of the matter is, is that you know as you lay out in this piece that a low mix, high volume way of manufacturing also is far more conducive to not just profit or not even profit, but control of labor right and the the control of labor in a direct way you know the 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 labor of exploitation as jason smith calls it in his uh in his uh recent brooklyn rail essay what do what do digital bosses do um where he talks about management is not 
management is not production. Management is exploitation. Management is the labor of exploitation. Um, and it's a lot easier to manage workers in a, uh, a, 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 a mode of manufacturing that's organized around low mix, high volume manufacturing because you've got workers set up in such a way where you're de-skilling them. Uh, they are uh, uh, like cogs in the machine in the sense that they are, they are themselves standardized and easily replaceable. Uh, they, you know, they, uh, a lot of their, a lot of the skill and expertise and knowledge, um, that they have as labor is as, uh, uh, Alessandro Delfonti talks about it in terms of machinic dispossession. Um, you know, the, that, that's, that skill and knowledge, uh, and expertise of labor is dispossessed by the machinery, by the dead labor that, do that comes to dominate living labor in a, in a system set up for low mix, high volume manufacturing. Uh, it's much more, there's, there's a much more strict and hierarchical stratification of, of, of knowledge and power, um, over manufacturing. And it's one that funnels that, uh, that, sh that, that, uh, a hierarchy upwards such that the uh, higher, quote unquote, higher level workers, you know, the, 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 the owners, the bosses, the managers all have a lot more control over the production process than the quote unquote lower level workers, you know, the machine operators, the technicians, the shop assistants, you know, these people, right? And so like this system of a low mix, high volume manufacturing is not just it's vulgar if we think about it only in terms of profit. Indeed, if we think about it only in terms of profit, we kind of play into the hands of capitalism, uh, of, of the neoclassical economist, um, because we overlook the, what, what is often even more important here and is, uh, the control of labor, right? Con uh, the, the, the rationalization, the management and the control of labor power. And you can do that a lot better. In, a, in the in this uh, uh, low mix high volume manufacturing uh, uh, processes, um, this I often think about the example that the historian David Noble gives in his book Forces of Production, where he it's a really nice historical example of the specific you know uh, uh, political outcomes of social choices of technological design, right? Where you know there's there were, I, I, I'm going to forget exactly the, the details and maybe this is better at your, uh, on the tip of your, uh, tongue, uh, Nick, better than mine. But, you know, he's essentially talking about there was a, a kind of a decision point between two different ways of doing, uh, automated manufacturing in machine shops. Yeah. He was talking about, uh, and numerical control for machining versus, uh, the kind of piano player method that, or player piano method for machining, um, specifically. Yeah, do you want to just briefly outline that? Because I think it also really brilliantly crystallizes a lot of the kind of the 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 techno the technopolitics uh, that we're talking about in in manufacturing choices. Sure. So that's so yeah. Noble's book is a pretty interesting case study. Um, I I actually, to be honest, I find myself disagreeing with some of his larger um, uh, kind of points he's making politically. Even but but the his account of how everything went down is is very invaluable. Basically. Uh, to, for the for the listeners, the idea is that uh, to machine uh, pieces of metal, 
into uh, into shapes. Uh, specifically, this was for uh, aircraft airframes in the I think it was like the seventies or something like that. Um, and so they needed a way to um, handle these kind of complex curvatures uh, that were they were machining. And uh, one way to there was um, there was two competing technologies being developed that would. Uh, enhance the the productivity of the worker as well as uh, their kind of the the accuracy and precision of uh, how they controlled the machine. And so one method was the player piano method, and it was called that because um, there's these there's these pianos that uh, you someone plays a song on them and it kind of records all those motions and it can kind of play back what the exactly how the person played it. And so the idea was that you have a, a skilled machinist um, machine a part with with one of these. Uh, with one of these machines. Um, I think this was done more on lathes before it was for mills, but the idea is the same. Uh, and then the idea is that once they've done it once now the machine, after having basically watched a person do it, can then repeat it back versus numerical control, which is kind of, um, the predecessor of what's, what's most common these days, at least, um, more prevalent. Um, although player piano still exists and still gets used, but, uh, NC is numerical control. Um, the predecessor to CNC, computerized numerical control, where basically you you program um, using a computer um, the 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 toolpath of the machine of the mill or the lathe and uh, or any other CNC uh, capable machine, anything that takes G code or whatever, and then uh, it it moves in this predetermined fashion um, as determined by someone who is typically not a machinist. Um, realistically, uh, the the programmers are often called in a CNC machine shop. The programmer usually is a, like a former machinist um, or has someone who has machinist training. So it's a bit of a misnomer to say they're not. But the idea was to give control to someone in the office, uh, you know, closer to management, uh, the actual control over the toolpaths of a machine um, versus the machinist themselves. And now the machinist um, who can, you know, coincidentally have very strong unions. Uh, now, you know, you can you can shatter their labor power and shatter their bargaining power and shatter the power of their union. Um, because now you don't need all their machinist skills. You just need them to load up the program and push a button. It gets way more complicated than that. It's a good book. I recommend going and reading it. Yeah, and and another wrinkle to that, and you know, David uh, Noble argues uh, that the player piano method was also more efficient and more profitable um, and to, uh, for production. And so this is a, an explicit case where capital was making a decision at a pivot point of technological innovation and the means of production. Uh, towards favoring a system that allowed for greater control over labor uh, and a greater funneling up of labor power into uh, the you, you know into the office away from the shop floor over a decision that was both more efficient and more profitable uh, well, so but let's 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 break that down a little because it's this conversation will continue on our patreon at patreon.com backslash it's, it's,